Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management, law firm leadership, and well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Denise Robinson. Denise is founding principal of the Still Center, and she's a diversity and wellness consultant in the D.C. area. The Still Center is a consultancy focused on facilitating personal well-being, interpersonal connection, and organizational inclusion through mindfulness-based diversity and inclusion methods. I asked Denise to participate in this episode to talk about diversity and wellness. Thanks for joining me today, Denise. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. Well, Denise, the term diversity is getting used a lot currently. I think a working definition of what it means to you for purposes of this podcast might be useful to our listeners. Can you provide your definition? Sure. Um, Let me start by saying that diversity, and I'm using air quotes here, was the only term being used on the topic when I started this work um, full-time anyway, around 2007 or so. That's when I went into a law firm to do diversity work full-time, and I was the sort of diversity manager, right, at that time. Whereas now I describe my work, and many people who do this kind of work would describe it as diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
work or otherwise known as DEI. And then more recently, we're starting to hear more about the word um, belonging. And um, it's not to say that diversity is out of out of use at all. It's just that these additional terms, I think, help um, to be more descriptive about what it is um, that we're trying to do. What are some of the goals with respect to um, what we used to call just diversity and now refer to as diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Um, and so starting with just the term diversity, it's really just the variety of social and cultural identities that each person has. Um, so if I asked you, and you don't have to answer this, but if I were to ask you, you know, how do you identify in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of religion, in terms of um, geographic sort of or origin or national origin and so on, um, and if I went around the room and asked this of 10 people, no two of those individuals, even if they're identical twins, especially when I start getting into some of what we would call acquired diversity uh, characteristics or identities, um, no two individuals are going to have every single thing on that list uh, to be the same, especially, you know, as I expand out in terms of identities. And so that's really what the term diversity means. Now, that's not how it gets connoted. <laughs> it's um, it, the connotation I think has sort of taken on, um, for example, a firm might say, we have a diversity pipeline program. Well, what they mean by that typically is that they have a program in place to try to um, engage with people who maybe are not at the point of being candidates for recruitment, but are sort of earlier in the process, maybe in college, maybe early on um, in law school, who are from typically minority or uh, racial and ethnic minority groups or um, some other underrepresented, underserved, overlooked, um, excluded population um, of people, but it just sort of gets shorthanded but with diversity. <laughs> and I think um, the, the challenge with that is we hear diversity, just that term so much that often people who are in majority groups or dominant groups, especially let's talk about within the legal profession, um, they may think that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not part of this discussion. Um, I don't have a role to play here when in fact, yeah, you may not be the targeted group of this pipeline program, for example, that is the case, but we do need everyone to be a part of the solution or part of reaching this goal of having a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive profession. And so that's where terms like equity can be helpful because often what we're trying to do through programs like what I just described, for example, a diversity pipeline program is really an equity program. It is recognizing that not all people, um, all identity groups are starting out in the same place in terms of opportunities, for all sorts of reasons, certainly historical reasons being part of them, the ways in which different identity groups get ranked. We call that social hierarchy, um, to steal from the social scientists <laughs> out there. Um, the ways in which we have sort of constructed, or at some point people constructed this idea that, oh, people in this particular group are better right, or good, and then this, people in this particular group are, are um, to be avoided or bad in some way. And so given that's the reality of social hierarchy, there are ways in which we actually have to treat people differently or certain groups of people differently in order to give people equal, out, or not outcomes, but equal opportunities. 
Um, and that is what is meant by equity. Um, and then the inclusion part is really just basically the action, right? What are we doing to make sure that people are valued for the diversity that they're bringing into um, whatever the organization is, the institution, um, and so on. And then belonging is the feeling that we hope would hope that people will achieve um, if we are enacting diversity, equity, and inclusion properly at an organizational level. So that was a long answer, but... <laughs> Yeah, but but a great one. And the funny part is there were 10 questions I was going to ask, but you answered most of them. <laughs> so, but I, I have one. And okay. That is, I attended, you know, because there's a lot of these going on and we're actually in the legal profession. They're required for CLE in a lot of states right now. And I know that my home state is, but I'm just interested in a lot of cases, but one of the things I guess I didn't really realize when we were talking about pipelines, but this makes a lot more sense to me, is that I attended a discussion group a few weeks ago where what they're explaining is that when you're trying to have this pipeline and look at candidates for jobs, that the fact is that we tend to have criteria that applies to one particular group and forget that the signs and things that we need to look for from a different group are going to be different. And I know exactly. that after I heard that, because we've had some trouble recruiting in our own firm, a diverse group of people, and I heard that I'm going, oh, so we need to recruit differently. And when we're interviewing, we need to ask different questions and we need to think about it differently. Is that all a fair? Absolutely. That's exactly right. Um, could not have you know, stated it better myself, it require if we want something different, we have to do things in a different way, right? So if we're not finding that through our otherwise seemingly fair, you know, process, um, we're not getting a diverse, let's say racially diverse or gender diverse um, pool of talent um, or candidates in the door, then we need to look at, because it's not usually a problem with our um, sort of intentions or aspirations. Typically, people are well-meaning, especially leaders of organizations tend to, if they say they want more diversity, they want a more inclusive organization, they typically mean it. It just requires, though, in order to get that, that we do things a bit differently because um, all of us as human beings, we get these sort of, we get into um, these patterns of um this is how this is how our recruitment process has gone all along. We've been successful in air quotes again, right? And whatever it is that your sort of measure of success is, um, but not with respect to diversity. So how can we change our process in a way that continues to give us great talent, but that talent that that is not that is not just sort of a replication of what we already have. If our, if our goal is to, to be, in fact, more diverse. And you had mentioned that sometimes you'll have someone who's not in one of the targeted groups say, hey, this doesn't apply to me. But to me, in hearing that going, oh, that's where it really applies to all of us. We have to realize that each of us, when you say, hey, two people, you're, you know, your two identical twins aren't going to identify exactly the same. We all do based on our experiences and socialization and other factors. So the role, if I'm not in a targeted group, is to understand that, you know, this recruiting methodology might vary based on who I'm recruiting and the same thing's not going to apply. It might not be a test score that's going to be the indicator for a particular group. And that might be my, you know, my role or the role of somebody who's not in a targeted group. 
That's exactly right. And that's why we're seeing um, to sort of go outside the, well, it's still within the legal profession, we're seeing some law schools, for example, and certainly at the college um, undergrad level, we're starting to see schools move away from some of the, or, or putting so much weight, move away from putting so much weight on standardized testing. I'll put it that way. It's not that they're saying we're never going to look at an LSAT score um, again, but there's some understanding that um, that's not necessarily, those scores are not necessarily predictive of how well somebody is going to do in law school. And then clearly not as well as they will, it's not an indication of how well they will be in, in terms of actual practicing lawyers. And so um, that's, I think what you're pointing to exactly. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. At Foster Group, our team is different. One whose focus is on you and your dreams. Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there, wherever there is for you. Foster Group. Your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. And we're going to connect today the whole concept of diversity with well-being. So can you also give us your thoughts on what does well-being mean? Sure. So well-being, and I so appreciate, first of all, that you use the term well-being. Um, and there's nothing wrong with I, I, Usually when I get asked to talk about um, well-being, it's usually in the context of wellness. That's the term um, that is used. And there's nothing wrong uh, with, with that term. Uh, however, I like to use well-being because it's sort of a just the word being within well-being is a way of signaling um, that what we're talking about here is who we are as people, as opposed to just what we do, which is a little, those are different. <laughs> they um, certainly who you are can include what it is that you do. But I think particularly in our profession, as a former practicing lawyer myself, I feel like I can say this with some, some, um, you know, credibility here in our profession, we're encouraged in many ways to sort of take on the identity of being a lawyer. When in fact, that's what it is that we do. Yes, it takes up a lot of our time and, and all of that and is meaningful and it is how, you know, we make our livelihood and so on. So it is important. And yet it is not the totality of who we are. And so I, I like the term well-being um, because it kind of centers on that. Oh, who, who am I? And so in thinking about who am I, um, there are many different facets that we have. So I like to use, um, or I follow the same framework as the Institute for Wellbeing in Law, which is a, a nonprofit organization that is in its former name, which was the Nas National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. They produced a lot of the reports and things that we see within the legal profession on topics related to especially mental health and um, substance abuse. And um, they re sort of organized themselves into the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. And they um, talk about wellbeing in terms of sort of social wellbeing. So what is our relational um, wellbeing with respect to how we interact with others, um, vocational 
well-being, um, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. So there are all these different facets, and that's not an, an exhaustive list at all, but um, those are some of the ways in which we can attend to the different aspects of ourselves. And of course, the goal with the well part of well-being is to um, attend to those aspects in a way that is going to maximize our ability to flourish in those different aspects um, of our life. Are we always going to flourish in every aspect? Um, no, but we can certainly um, do things to promote um, improvement in each of those each of those facets. I like the use of the word flourishing. So I have a certificate of positive psych from Marty Seligman. And so that's oh, the term. Well, that, I need to ask you how you define well-being. <laughs> he introduces flourishing. Now, as I mostly practice law, that was my fun. While others during the pandemic power watch Netflix, I took classes. That's amazing. <laughs> it was just kind of my thing. So can awesome. you like just connect the dots a little bit between diversity and well-being? Sure. So... To me, the, the connection between diversity and well-being starts with or is rooted in the fact that human beings are social animals. Even introverts like myself <laughs> are still social animals. Um, and if we don't believe that, we can just look at, for example, how long human beings have to be cared for from, say, you know, infancy until, you know, a certain point at which you can kind of take care of yourself as compared to most if not all other animals right in the animal kingdom we need each other um some of us need more of each other <laughs> than others but at the end of the day we all um, need each other and as social animals um the drive to belong to some type of you know group that is going to help care for you um even once you reach adulthood that drive to belong is a really strong one um, for example, there's research that shows being excluded, sort of ostracized, right, in a social group feels or registers in the sort of pain centers of our brain. So it registers like physical pain, just being ostracized. Um, and so in other words, being included, and then what I talked about, this feeling of belonging, when I defined diversity earlier on in all the sort of related terms, um, those are key components of well-being. And so it's not the only component of well-being for all the reasons I mentioned before. There are a lot of different aspects of well-being, but because we are these social creatures, um, it's pretty important that we feel included and feel as if we belong. And I would say in including, and perhaps most importantly, in the places where we spend a lot of time, which for really any working person, but certainly um, those within the legal professions, we're going to spend a lot of time on, on the job, right, um, working with clients and so on. And so there, it's important to um, see that the, the relationship between sort of, you know, being included for who it is that I am, not just sort of like, for what it is I can do. Um, and my ability to feel like I can flourish to use that term again. You know, and as I'm thinking and listening to you, I'm thinking about all the way back to high school when the athletes hung out together and the nerds hung out together and the drama people hung out together. So even in yeah. that context, you're kind of missing out on diversity, right? 
Exactly. And that becomes, and I remember I was the weirdo who wouldn't let myself belong to any particular group. I hung out with them all. And so that's almost sort of a precursor of, of <laughs> diversity, maybe. I don't know. but It is. It's, uh, it's, uh, but I'm listening to that thinking how much better and more enriched we would have been if we'd all done a lot more m- mixing up. But I don't know that everybody believes that. But what would a diverse workplace look like and how would that enhance wellness? Yeah. Well-being. Um, well, absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, both terms are absolutely okay. It's just I like the sort of priming aspect, I actually, right? <laughs> I actually love what you said about well-being. it. So I'm going to make sure I always use it. <laughs> Um, priming is important uh, for for us as human beings as well. So in terms of what a diverse workforce looks like, and then maybe then I'll maybe talk about the the benefits of it. Um, To me, I think we want to see basically um, people who are representing a variety of identities and backgrounds and experiences and and all of that. And then but then the question is sort of what variety Right. So we could have, for example, I get from a number of my clients will sometimes say, well, we have diversity of thought. The people who are on our recruitment committee, for example, are free to dissent and to offer different opinions and all of that. We we entertain that as part of our evaluation um, process of, of candidates. And um, that's great. However, understand that um, those sort of acquired aspects of diversity are often informed at a minimum by some more more inherent aspects of diversity. And so if you do not have um, the kind of racial diversity, the some I'm trying to think of some of the identities that are most um, not just most apparent, but also tend to be most salient in our interactions in this particular society. So it's going to be different depending upon where you are in the world. Race may not be as important as religion, for example, in certain parts of the world, but gender um, here, sexual orientation, age even, right? Um, Ability as another one. If you don't have some of that within your diversity of thought mix, <laughs> there's not diversity in terms of some of those identities, there will be, and there are studies that bear this out, that there, you're going to be missing um, some perspectives that you will need in order to um, make the most effective decisions or solve for sort of have the best solutions um, to whatever the problem is that you are trying to um, solve. And so in terms of what variety should be present, um, you wanna think about as an employer, what are the communities that you're present in or what is the community that you're present in? So is your workforce reflective of the diversity diversity of those various identities that you would find in your community or communities? And then again, especially thinking about in the legal profession, we're serving, right? This is a service profession. And so thinking about the communities that we are serving um, through our, whatever it is, you know, whatever our practice of law or our practice area is, what is, what is the diversity of that community, you know, look like? And some might say, well, we are, <laughs> we're working on behalf of, let's say, organizations that are not particularly our, our clients, the in-house counsel at the, the, you know, companies that we're representing are not particularly uh, diverse in the ways that I just talked about are sort of salient within our, um, within our, our, our American culture, for example. Well, who are what are the what are the what's the diversity within the communities of the 
that your clients are serving. So if you're doing work for, say, like a retail company or a sort of multinational company for they're selling something right to people, they probably want to sell it to as many people as possible. They probably don't care a whole lot about like, you know, what is the color or what is the religion of the people that you're trying to sell this particular product or service to? They want to sell to as many people as as possible. And so thinking about it in that way, don't be just limited to, well, you know, our client base is not particularly diverse. And so this is not something we need to be concerned about. Think about, you know, sort of a step further than that. Who are they serving um, to help with trying to figure out what variety should be present within our workplace? You know, I'm thinking... In a lot of places, you know, there's a lot of conversation going on, particularly in the legal profession, but others as well. I do a lot of work with the physician community, the whole concept of well-being, avoiding burnout, all of that. And then there's a lot of conversation about the diversity, equity, and inclusion. But this is the first, you're the first person I've heard really bring those together as opposed to, hey, there's a pot over here and there's a pot over there. So if you're part of leadership or you're talking to leadership, about how to bring those together and what steps or how to look at bringing those together as seeing them as separate pots. And maybe that goes back to your early comment about distinguishing well-being and wellness, that people think of well-being as wellness versus well-being. Yeah, a little bit, I think. Um, I I do think not sort of thinking about wellness, if you will, or or well-being holistically kind of um, keeps it siloed from diversity or sort of uh, talent development, perhaps more generally, anything else that we're doing on behalf of the people that are part of our organization. So um, trying to, as, as a leader for an organization, what I would say is to think about um, all the ways in which um, people are, just think about all the sort of various needs of the workforce that that you have, and that will help with, at a minimum, seeing diversity, equity, and inclusion and well-being um, as interconnected and other talent-related <laughs> um, topics. So it's not just these two that are um, interconnected, but many, many um, things that can. And I think in, in some ways that actually it's helpful from a resource standpoint to think about these issues as being um, interconnected because, you know, well, we can help each other. If you have a diverse, if you're fortunate, right, to run an organization that has a, a DEI team and has a wellness probably is right, what it's called, um, team. Well, if they come together, I bet they can be even more powerful in whatever it is that they're trying to deliver um, to the workforce or perhaps on behalf of uh, the, the clients or whoever it is that you're serving. So so that's just one one thought for leaders to really sort of be integrated in, in their thinking about um, these topics not to get sort of siloed. And then the other thing I would say for um, leaders of organizations is to um, really, what I have seen work well with the many, many different leaders of organizations with whom I've worked or been a part of, is that they have a very clear intention with respect to what they want to do around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then, um, and then they take action right, on that intention. So it's both. It's not, you know, you can't do the work really without having this clear, some people might call it a vision, whatever you call it, just having a clear 
some a type of aspiration as to kind of where you want to where you're trying to go and then actions to to couple that um i could give a couple of examples but i don't want to I'd actually, <laughs> I too think much an, time, so. but I think an example would be really helpful. So if you have sure. a couple, I'd love to have at okay. least one of those. Okay, sure. So one example I can think of is I had the fortune of working with the late Secretary Warren Christopher, so former uh, Secretary of State, I think in the Clinton um, administration. And I worked with him when I was at O'Melveny and Myers, a law firm, global law firm. And by the time I worked with Mr. Christopher, um, he was the firm's diversity partner. So it was really his job, right, to talk about what then was really just diversity, but diversity, equity, and inclusion, right, all the time. But I bring him up, he comes to mind because he was, um, he had a vision for diversity, equity, and inclusion and took action on it throughout his career. Um, he, when he was the chair of the firm, he was talking about these issues well before really diversity was even a buzzword, right, within the legal profession. When he was Secretary of State, you know, he had examples he could talk with us and did talk with us about when he was taking action on this vision of really being able to, um, and especially thinking about it from as you know, the chief diplomat of the country, right? You have to be thinking about, if you're not thinking about the, the diversity of the world, um, you're not, you're going to be missing out, right? On sort of being able to do your job most effectively. And so he would, he would talk about that. And even in sort of prior roles um, that he had within uh, the government and, and otherwise. And so he really embodied and would tell stories about um, the ways in which he didn't just talk the talk of we want, you know, more whatever type of diversity it was, but he really walked it and could give very clear examples of his time at you know, state and having some, there was some type of conflict going on in some part of the world where he would, he created the kind of environment where people felt like they could come to him, even if they were many layers, sort of levels below him, they could offer up ideas um, to him to say, hey, you know, I come from this part of the world and our approach to this is needs to be changed, you know, in this way, because I know how it is that, you know, folks may be thinking um, who are, who you're dealing with on sort of the other side of uh, this conflict. He created environments wherever he was, where people could not just be in the room with that diversity, but were actually included in the discussion. Um, and it brings to mind one of the ways um, that belonging is um, defined by a, he's a law professor, civil rights lawyer. Um, he's now the director of something called the Othering and Belonging Institute out of UC Berkeley. His name is John A. Powell. And one of the ways that Mr. Powell defines, diver I mean, excuse me, belonging is to say that it is a co-creation of whatever thing you belong to or are a part of. So it's not just being there, it's about feeling like you have a role to play and an important role, a role that is valued, that contributes to the, you know, whatever it is that you're a part of a workplace, a, you know, some other type of institution. And so you are helping to co-create that. 
um, place. So Mr. Christopher comes to mind when I think of, um, you know, a leader who really embodies that or embodied. I think that's a great example. And it reminds me of one time I was on this task force for the American Bar Association. And there were a significant number of us from all different walks. And the leader of that group had us like all like you had to basically come up with three ideas and we all put them up and I'm going, this is going to take forever. Like we just need to make a decision and move on. But instead, then we kept voting down until we got to three ideas and all those all three of those ideas became came to life and exist today many years later and are doing some really good things. And so that was actually taught me the value of including all of the different thoughts in the room and actually including versus just having somebody sitting at the table. Well, we are at the end of our time. So do you have any last thoughts you want to leave us with? I think in terms of last thoughts, um, I would just go back to the, the idea that these issues are interconnected. It's just a matter of um, trying to see the ways in which, you know, anytime that you're talking about people, um, people, all of us are diverse, right? Any group of individuals, so that may be one takeaway, right? That any group of individuals uh, is diverse, even though that's not the way it's often uh, connoted. Um, So that's one piece. And we are all really striving to not just survive this life that we're a part of, um, but we're really trying to um, thrive, to use another term similar to the concept of of flourishing. And so if you are trying, if you're working with any group of individuals, um, but certainly people who come from groups that have been excluded historically or currently or otherwise um, have been sort of ostracized by society or a profession in some way, we need to be even more intentional in terms of how we are attending to, from an institutional standpoint, attending to the many different facets of those um, individuals so that they can, you know, not just do the best work, you know, that's why they're there, but also we can help them help them to be the best human beings that they uh, can possibly be. So that's what I would <laughs> offer. No, I, I like that. Being yeah. very intentional and I've d- done a few podcasts on the whole concept of, um, so the whole concept of mindfulness and mindfulness is all about bringing yourself to the present and helping establish intention. Well, as we reach the end of our episode, I first want to thank you so much for joining us today, Denise. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.